right now in the studio we have open spatial workshops so that is Scott Terry and Bianca and they're here talking about their current exhibition at MoMA converging in time hi guys how are you hi hi great thanks so your practice combines earth science research and a multitude of different artistic practices can you describe how you came to arrive at these conclusions for this exhibition We've been doing some research in the Earth Sciences section of um, the Melbourne Museum for about six years. Um, and this exhibition is the culmination of that research. We were particularly interested in the kinds of geological formations that evidence the formation in the object. And we've linked that to our sculptural practice. Yep, great. So how long have the three of you been the Open Spatial Workshop and um, how did you guys meet? What drew you together? Uh, well, the group formed out of um, uh, Artist Run Space Club's project, which was in, above the Builders' Arms in Footscray. No, sorry, in Fitzroy. <laughs> and um, Terry and Bianca were uh, part of the Builders' Arms Committee and that space tried to imagine a more flexible relationship to exhibiting, so one that didn't follow a commercial model of a four-week show and then someone you bumped out and someone else bumped in over the weekend and you had another show. So it tried to imagine a, a different way of making art public and because they were proposing that model, they also thought they should respond to that model, so they, Terry and Bianca started Open Spatial Workshop. Mm. So... Mainly sculpture, because sculpture, sorry, we're talking so much about, but why sculpture so much? Why focus? I guess it's our background. Bianca and I studied sculpture. We're in the same class at RMIT. I think we finished uh, in the late 90s. Terry was actually our lecturer then. Uh, <laughs> I, I started teaching the year they started uh, studying, and so I think we both learnt along the way. <laughs> yeah, that's fascinating. You managed to build a relationship. Uh, that's it's great. Yeah, it took a long time. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Bianca, are you there? Did you have anything to? Yeah, I'm here. Did you have anything Sorry. to add to that? How you guys met, and um, and why sculpture in particular? Well, yeah, it's what we studied and we continue to develop as artists. And um, sculpture is, we find it so engaging in terms of the process. It's very process intensive and very spatial and um, physically demanding. And also uh, it relates to our interest in geology. Um, it's a kind of focus on materiality and process in time. So that's the link to the kind of geological mm -hmm. engagement mm. Um, or interest. The question of time, I think, do you, how do you address that sort of idea and theme in, in the work in this particular exhibition? It's been a, quite a difficult thing for us to address, I think. It's quite difficult to conceive of times outside of a human perspective or even a day-to-day -day perspective. Mm. Even, you know, the length of our lifetime is difficult to conceive of, but the length of a rock's lifetime or the length of... Uh, we have a piece of the Murchison meteorite in the show which has grains inside it which pre-exist the formation of the solar system so to try and conceive of that sort of time is very difficult so to then try and produce sculpture that deals with that or makes what puts that in play is quite a challenge and I don't think necessarily sculpture has the tools to do that but what it maybe does is it has the ability to arrest the viewer and break them from their current perception of time mm. and place them in a, a drift maybe. That was my um, I think you sort of answered my next question which was going to be how does geology in particular, you know, you're talking about these formations that are ancient and incredible, it's almost saying something its own self, it almost has its own artistic meaning, but then how would you sort of 
enhance that or bring it into your own into your own framework of values and and messages. That was the challenge with this exhibition, how to incorporate the specimens from the museum in a way where they weren't being displayed like museum specimens, but still um, met the protocols that the museum requires in terms of the safety of the specimens. So we ended up incorporating them into sculptural assemblages display devices that uh, utilise sculptural kinds of methodologies and scale and positioning and video to draw out the sorts of formations that we found interesting and connect with our sculptural practice. So just going on the concept of time, you just mentioned that you have involved video. Is that to portray the element of time in which sculpture cannot in that sense and I guess what I'm asking is how have you used video to play into this theme? Yeah sculpture itself does play with time so the video and the sculptural are both dealing with time I guess with the sculptural in many ways the viewer gets to uh, orchestrate the time you know the duration of that engagement or the um, the way they proceed through that spatial experience and with video maybe it's a little bit more choreographed that relationship's time. But I think uh, while there's three video works in the show, two of them, I think, produce a relationship to time that is a little bit disorientating. So they're looped video and they don't really have a beginning or an end. They're a kind of a flow of time. And then the third video is uh, what Terry's been calling our sci-fi video, which <laughs> is a fictitious uh, meteorite impact at uh, Abbotsford Convent at C3 Gallery. Terry, do you want to talk a little bit about that? Uh, well, we've all had an interest in um, science fiction over the years, and we've done some exhibitions that relate to that. And I guess with the um, Glimpse video, we were trying to produce a loose narrative that suggested this fictitious event in a way that altered the perception of time through the filming of the video. It mm -hmm. features some amazing slow motion footage that was taken for us by Matt. Bianca might remember. Bianca, can you hear us any better now? I can hear it, Terry. Yeah, the guy was called Matt. Carver. Yeah, he had an amazing camera that caught some beautiful slow motion footage of the cast meteorite that we dropped from the biggest crane we could find oh. um, at Abbotsford Convent. You just, uh, all, our entire audience is going to this show now. <laughs> uh, yeah, it was quite an event. Mm -hmm. um, that video actually featured an, in an exhibition at C3 in 2015 called Feeling Material, mm -hmm. and we've included it in this exhibition again because of the meteorite that it features connects to the work that we've continued to do. Um, sort of, I guess, going on to a little bit of a different tack now, but we talked a bit about Anthropocene, the idea of the Anthropocene, and also extractivism. Do you want to sort of introduce our listeners to those two concepts just briefly and then talk about the way in which maybe extractivism works with your comments on the Anthropocene? Sure. So the Anthropocene, uh, if your viewers don't know, is a proposition for a new geological epoch. It replaces the Holocene or it comes after the Holocene, which we've been living up to this point, or it depends whether you draw the line of this new epoch. It's a proposition in that it's a proposition that says humans have now dramatically changed the geological formations, or they will in the future, will, future geologists will look back and see this change in the, in the earth. 
Uh, it's an interesting proposition, not simply from a geological point of view. It's interesting because it forces you to rethink the human in relationship to Earth. If the human and the Earth, if the human is now entwined in the creation of the Earth in a particular way, then you have to rethink a delineation between the human and the Earth. So extractionism, so... So the idea that you've, uh, the human draws these materials out of the earth, so that would probably position the human as, as exterior to the earth, as separate to the earth. But maybe what you could think of, if you're thinking of this new epoch, the Anthropocene, you might think of the human and the earth as entwined. And so the human is produced by the qualities of the earth. And so rather than extracting from the earth, the human is the type of human they are because of what the soil is made up of. So we in Victoria, for example, are a coal-driven society because we're sitting, or Gippsland sits, on these large brown coal fields. And so to come to terms with that, to try and be something other, is to come to terms with your geological mm. position. Or inheritances, geological inheritance. Mm -hmm. In the last sort of, um, I guess, uh, would the industrial sort of age be another instance of sort of geological histories and different? Yeah, definitely they they impact the planet. And, you know, you, uh, some people draw the line of the Anthropocene at the beginning, at the dawn of the Industrial Revolution. Mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. That's when we start to have huge uh, impacts on, on the world around us. And we talked touched on sci-fi just before as well. In terms of projections, does your exhibition make any comments on perhaps the future of the next 100, 500 years? And is it based in Australia or are you thinking globally? Almost all the uh, specimens are from Victoria and the exhibition extracts various narratives connected to them. And there's a publication that accompanies the exhibition that elaborates on those various kinds of histories. Mm. And one of the um, objects included in the exhibition that we've made is a rock that we're calling Anthropocyte, mm -hmm. after the Anthropocene. We were commissioned in 2015 to contribute a work to a new geological garden at the Clayton campus of Monash University. And for that, we devised a rock that is a proposition of what would happen to the geosciences building in 100,000 years. Um, it's made out of recycled plastic and glass and concrete mm. and formed in the way that a lava bomb is formed. Yeah, you're going to have to talk a little bit more about that. How does it <laughs> describe it to us? Um, lava bombs are thrown out by volcanoes mm. in the process of erupting and it what happens is the lava wraps around a rock that the volcano is in the situation of and they move through the air and form through an aerodynamic kind of process. Mm -hmm. And if they crack open when they fall inside the shell, the molten, what was molten lava, is the rock of the area or the mantle. So we have a lava bomb, a real one, in the exhibition and we have the one that we've made where the interior is a sedimentary rock made out of these recycled products and the exterior has been formed in a kiln from melting scoria, which is the material that you excavate from around yeah. volcanoes and usually put in your garden. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, well, just since we've touched on the, the lava bomb, what other bits and pieces that are perhaps more obscure, some interesting ones? I, I've read some interesting ones, but I want you to maybe rattle off some what's included that you guys particularly, perhaps what you find the most engaging. One of the one of the major specimens in the show, important from the museum perspective, because it's quite a valuable specimen for them, and uh, but also important for the narratives it produces, is a sea lily. And sea lilies are little animals that uh, lived on the bottom of the ocean, both shallow and deep, 
ocean around uh, 450 million years ago. So this is prior to any uh, land vegetation. And at this point in history, the, our eastern coast was being formed. So uh, our eastern coast was being formed by underwater landslides. And one and a sea lily got squashed in an underwater landslide, basically. So you had this moment in history where a sea lily gets squashed by mud. Then it gets compacted in the silt, and that mud becomes the mud in the Brunswick clay pits that then gets formed into bricks. So it's this amazing connection from 450 million years ago to the, the bricks that built Melbourne. And when we were at the museum, it's these kind of conversations, these kind of stories that emerged from the specimens that we found most fascinating. Yeah, I have nothing to add to that. Uh, did you have anything to add? No, it's one of several specimens that mm. have these amazing connections that, you know, cross time periods and social and economic histories. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm glad you plugged that because actually at the, the Brunswick one was the thing that I was thinking of when I asked. <laughs> Guys, thank you so much. We're going to have to leave it there today. Just quickly, re- uh, uh, remind us of times, dates, anything else you'd like to plug? Uh, so the exhibition's on at Mooma until mid-April. That's out on the Caulfield campus of Monash University. And there's the publication also... will be coming out shortly as well, which is an essential part of the work because it holds the whole project. The whole project uh, consists of the exhibition in combination with the publication, and the publication unfolds a lot of the social and economic histories that we've just mentioned today in much more detail. So, recommend that. Beautiful. Thank you so much. Thanks so much, guys, for coming into the studio, Thank and you. Uh, thanks for Bianca coming in by phone. Um, Thank you. I'm Molly. I've been here with Jim and Rebby. This is Arts Mitten on Sin Nation.